anyway, today we have, you know, I always find that there are moments in life that are extraordinary, like a walking down the hall, and I said, if this has got to be live stream, this has got to be video, this has got to be podcast, I mean, you're great, but the world's got to see it. And there they are, my MJ, hemp guys, are filming it live so we can podcast it, live stream, and put it all over the world, globally. I mean, hemp CBD is global, and it's shifting everybody's mindset. And with that said, oh really, you can't have it. I thought you took care of that. We could, remind me later. Okay, so with that said, so I flew in from New York this morning after doing, we're in Woodstock, New York is our warehouses. And um, I've, we did a big event there last night because the 50th anniversary of Woodstock is happening and we're having the largest CBD tent in Woodstock. Yes. Yay, Michael Lang! So with that said, uh, I was watching Ruth Ginsburg's bio. Anyone see it? Her bio, her, it's unbelievable. And I really got that we are so powerful and we are shifting what's going on in this market right now. And this panel are shifters and makers and doers and doctors and voices and we are here to make sure that we understand what we're doing this for. If this is about money, we're in the wrong room. If this is about your bottom line, this isn't the room to look at your spreadsheets. This, I'm here because not only am I a mother, I am also a grandmother of two. And what are we doing with our children? What are we giving them? What are we serving them? What are we feeling about them? When do we do it? When do we not do it? How has it helped them? So this room is very empowering for millions to hear of that shift. I, when I saw her this morning on this you know, documentary, it was so powerful. I mean, I sat there, she changed everything about women's rights and we're changing everything about health this moment, this second, right now. And this is about youth and the children of tomorrow. So knowing me, listen, I've got two grandkids. What is this planet going to look like? What are they going to be eating? What are they going to be drinking? So I'm going to let this panel introduce themselves. I gabbed enough. And we're going to free float this into a discussion and just let it happen in its own natural, organic way. And we're going to introduce each th themselves and tell us a, one minute two minutes on who they are because then we have you know reality questions and Q&A that's going to come out of this so we can all learn from this because the youth are important they're going through a million changes and I'm not going to talk politics <laughs> I'm saving it so anyway please introduce yourself Hi everyone, my name is Shira Adler. I am an author, speaker, instigator, founder and CEO of a consumer products company that's designed to be a holistic system of integration and balance and wellness. And I'm also the author of this book, The ABCs of CBD, The Essential Guide for Parents and Regular Folks Too. I wrote it while my second child was in residential treatment. Rather, I started living this many, many years ago. I'm actually one of the elder statesmen in the industry as well. I just don't show it or admit to it. And, um, but proudly so, <coughs> they say that uh, necessity is the motherhood of invention. 
And so I am the mother who had a very strong need of looking for alternative complementary solutions to help integrate my two at the time very younger, much younger and struggling children who've had a lot of trauma, a lot of uh, the way the world was hitting them was not creating wellness and balance. And as a parent, and my background is actually clergy, I am a cantor, non-denominational interfaith minister, just sang High Holidays and then went on a book tour, because that's what every nice other Jewish girl from New York does. Um, but I'm a shamanistic healer, a certified past life regressionist, metaphysical energy worker. And so I, when I work with people, as I have for the last 30 years, and I specialize in mainstream diagnoses that have emotional and spiritual connections. So my company had to speak to that. And to me right now, at this time, at this planet, PTSD is a societal issue that is affecting and causing co-occurring um, modalities such as anxiety and depression and misdiagnosis of uh, young women with the Me Too movement being called bipolar. and So there are lots and lots of areas of where our worlds are colliding, but they're not always integrating. And so the information in the book is meant to break stigma and to change mindsets and to open hearts and to work with doctors and other therapists and spiritual counselors as I am and put forth the very best of what this plant species was meant to do and to merge ancient wisdom with modern science because that is the only way we are going to correct that which needs to be corrected. Wow. Okay. Oh, sure. Oh, uh, book signing tomorrow morning at 10 a.m. So we'll chat. Yeah, I forgot about that. there. Hi, I'm Dana Callow. I am the uh, CEO and Chief Creative Officer for an advertising agency specializing in both the THC and the CBD space um, it, out of Denver, Colorado. We are but a year old, but for 25 years before that, I spent my entire career in advertising. I lovingly say that uh, we work. I've worked on everything from booze to baby food, and now I can count in a few other things. Um, I did spend seven to ten years in the pharmaceutical world, so hardcore pharma drugs, FDA regulated black box drugs, uh, really tough to treat conditions, rare disease states like Lennox-Gastaut syndrome, which if any of you are familiar with Epidiolex, you know that's what they got their indication for. Um, drugs that treat narcolepsy, Parkinson's, lots of different neurological disorders. Um, during that time, I was fortunate enough, especially on the brand that treated LGS, to travel the country while the Epidiolex trials were happening. So while I was interviewing and hearing the most amazing stories from patients and families who were suffering from that disorder, and mostly benefiting from the brand that I worked on. Some of them were also in those trials. So I had a great insight into what they were considering, what they were going through, how they were feeling. The reason that I can claim I was good at that is because I'm also the mother of four, which Miriam doesn't believe me, but it's true. Um, the oldest one is 26, the youngest one is eight, so I am also insane, but... You have to get, it's not only for eight, it's only for My third child, who is now 20 years old, was born with a rare brain malformation. It's called schizencephaly. Um, so she's missing about 80% of the right side of her brain. She suffers from epilepsy, ocular and oral motor apraxia, hemiplegia, diplegia, um, and a, a mood disorder that luckily didn't show itself till she was a teenager. <laughs> 
But as you can imagine, um, she has, is and has been on a myriad of prescription medications. And I think the most interesting thing I've learned in my own journey and in talking to other patients and families is the concoctions of, of drugs that these kids really do need to control a lot of what's happening in their lives. Um, they're both good and bad on so many levels. And dealing with them over time is one of the biggest challenges I've ever faced and it's always what I hear from parents. And when you think about the fact that not only do I have a special child who requires a lot of attention, and if I have other children, I have to figure out how to balance that in order to help them medically, I now also have to add those worries to lists. Rashes and reactions, tolerance, somnolence, all the things that come along with that. Um, so I have this really interesting both professional and personal connection to what I do and that was why at 45 years old or a couple years ago when we decided to do this um, I was ready to make the jump out of mainstream advertising and into something else so I am not a doctor I don't know anything about what you do um, but I think from a patient perspective and a parent perspective I hope I can add a lot to the conversation today Uh, my name is Carlton Bone. Uh, I was not supposed to be on this panel today, but uh, Shira grabbed me before and said that there was an opportunity. Uh, I'm 23 years old, and I've been involved in this industry for about three years legally, and we don't talk about prior to that. But uh, this is something that I'm intimately aware as because uh, when I was 16 years old, I was uh, on Lamotrigine, not for uh, an epilepsy-related condition, but for a mood condition, and developed a Steven Johnson syndrome. Uh, put me in a hospital, uh, intensive ICU, for about a month, and was uh, a moment where my parents were really concerned they would lose me. Uh, since that time, uh, my respect for sort of the severity of you know clinical medicine and side effects and how rare cases don't matter if you're that rare case and how rare cases can't happen when we have such potential medicine at our fingertips. Uh, so I'm really excited to be part of this panel today to share in that conversation about you know the the hardships and challenges to making accessible healthcare possible for young people. So yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for stepping in. Now our doc. Get ready. No, 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 no. <laughs> uh, my name is Bowden Spalding. I am president of Leaf Vertical. We are a biopharmaceutical company. Our main focus is oncology. We sponsor FDA clinical trials for glioblastoma, brain, myeloma, blood, GI, esophageal to rectal, breast, and we also added basal cell and squamous cell carcinoma, which is the precursors to skin cancer. So on our organization as a whole, that is our main focus, that is what we do. We sponsor, fund uh, drugs, cancer drugs, for clinical trials with the FDA to get them approved to change, ultimately to change standard of care related to youth as, uh, as we discussed earlier when uh, Mary and I sat down and had a chat earlier. So that's, that's uh, me in a very quick nutshell. and understand that we have a very diverse panel. We have a youth that has gone through it, a mother that has felt it for the last, 20, oh, let me just scratch the, the 20 years. And then we have someone that's doing testing and working on it, and how will it make a difference in today's moment of breath? So 
how do you see what you're doing and what you wrote in this book? How do you see that it's going to make a shift? How do you see you're going to do a shift? I'm curious to know, you've now been out there, how long have you been playing in the world of CBD? Uh, I started my um, health and wellness company in 2011 and I uh, started with an aromatherapy line, which mm. again was meant to integrate and balance and work with the traditional pharmacological responses and, and treatments my children were on, who were now not mm. on any Western drugs, by the way. Um, and I switched into CBD, or rather I incorporated yet the other side of the plant medicine, which is the cannabis side, when I was already doing the essential oil side, right? All the phytocannabinoids mm -hmm. exist in nature in various forms. and. I wrote this book and I How did you know how much to give them? Well, how did it was, it, where it was did a complimentary, exactly. uh, it was a support for the standard, this is what the teacher's pressure looked like, this is what the doctor suggested, this is the, the series of medications that my children had been on from Abilify through Zoloft, right? Literally the A to Z of every kind of standard, the Ritalins and the antidepressants mm -hmm. and all of this. But when my then fourth grade, going into fifth grade, my eldest, my daughter, uh, became suicidal because of a reaction to those very medications by the very trusted practitioners. Um, that changed everything. And then I became far more interested in like, okay, I literally almost lost that child. Because the very first question when I had to take her into the mental health hospital where I worked as a spiritual counselor, and they said, who the hell put her on this high a dose of Zoloft? She was a fourth grade girl, but they based it on body mass and size. She was an overweight, struggled with eating disorder young girl, right? We hear these stories. Every one of us has these stories. That was a game changer for me. And I was like, okay, now I'm gonna go deeper into plant medicine. I'm gonna go deeper and hardcore into what else is there? It was a yes and conversation. None of us on this panel and none of us in this room could tell another parent, look them in the eyes and feel the energy of what they've been through and say, this is what you need to do. This is the choice you must make. You can't walk in another parent's or another person's shoes. shoes. But you can offer empathy, wisdom, and your experience and say, I'm curious where you are. I'm curious what you think you need. Here's the information that after living it and speaking it over and over and over, I said, mm -hmm. okay, we have to start with breaking stigma. We have to reinvent the language for how we describe what plant medicine is. We need to have a regulation in place for safety and testing and efficacy. We have to legalize in order to protect our children. So the hardest part for me and the biggest pushback is going into a parent group uh, and saying, having a mother come up to me and say, my child overdosed on heroin and it never would have happened if they hadn't started. My child who died told me I never would have become a drug addict if I hadn't started smoking a joint. And I, as my background or whatever, have to look at her and say, my children were in residential treatment. I almost lost a child. I can't imagine what your pain is. I can come close to it though. And my heart is with you. And I'm not gonna change your mind and I'm not gonna diminish your pain. What I'm going to do is offer you a little bit of information you may not be aware of. And that's all we can do. We can mm -hmm. show up with an open heart and a tremendous amount of research and education and experience and share. Sometimes it will be well received and sometimes it will not. Yes. I am the mother who's been reported six times to Child Protective Services because of who I am and what I do. And the last time was by my daughter's own therapist who carried my aromatherapy line in her office but reported me for, quote, treating my minors with marijuana. So I will say to you, fight the good fight, do it from a place of love and light, 
but don't expect to, it's not for the faint of heart to be in this industry. Wow. So Doc, what's your take on it? I love some of your input that you've been finding and your research that you've been doing. I know that most of it, you cannot, listen, uh, my labels on my tea bags were written by the lawyers of Whole Foods. The lawyers of Whole Foods did my tea bags and he wouldn't let me put the word CBD on the bags. And he said, you can't tell this, you can't say that, you can't say how it's gonna help, can't do any of that, you can't admit, okay, what do you want me to say? So with that said, what have, what have you learned? Come on, share a little bit. Uh, You've done a lot of work. Are there locks on those doors? By yeah, okay, lock the like, doors, guys. The door, We're getting yeah. into the nitty yeah. gritty. It's live streamed. So uh, in the interest of total disclosure, I had to submit my questions that I was going to be asked to the FDA attorneys to come back to me to answer my standard CAN responses. So considering we're live streaming, I really can't say shit. <laughs> so in, in terms of um, how I personally feel, and what the attorneys did say is, hey, you can't discuss anything of what we're doing in clinical, but future is wide open. Please. Okay, cool. That's, it. That's all I needed to know. Thank you. I won't say squat about what we're doing, but for what's going to happen, what we would like to have happen, right. I would, there's, enough, there's enough brain power now, but like, my main aspect is the differentials between scientific evidence and anecdotal. CBD is unfortunately getting into a heavily, heavily, heavily anecdotal basis of the plight of the blogger, right? And the person who wants exposure versus science-based, which takes a, sh a ridiculous amount of cash and it takes a lot of time. So finally, you have that is now happened, right? It's not happening, it's happened like in the past. So there's now money that's come into this space that will amply fund FDA studies to further the advancement of standard of care. Meaning, our, uh, a patient X comes in and is late stage, I'm gonna pick on pancreatic, right? That's what we talked about. So patients late stage pancreatic GI cancer, stage four. The standard practitioner says, okay, here's your 19.9 score and uh, yeah, which color casket would you like? by chance, right? Like that's basically what you're dealing with in pancreatic cancer. Whereas there are now things being done, which, which we will not discuss, right? Like Voldemort and ongoing. Okay, cool. Those things are strong enough to carry forward changes to standard of care. So we would never be egotistical and walk into a room with big pharma and say, here, take our shit versus that chemo, right? Never in a million years, you'll end up dead and you'll be squashed. So instead we say, here, this is your chemo regimen that your doctor has kindly said for you to go do. You're gonna be on full rounds of Falfirinox chemo. It's gonna suck and you're gonna stay with it as long and as hard as you possibly can because we have a chance of beating it. Well, now, based on standard of care, and again, this ties solely to the youth, right? Like our main goal as, a, as an organization is to fundamentally leave the planet in, in a better condition than we inherited it. That's what we're going to go do as a company. So as Miriam talked about, the, the money is secondary. There's enough money in the healthcare space. You don't have to worry about paying your electric bill, right? You'll be good. But what it can do from a humanitarian standpoint is allow this bottle of this drug, which can now go get approved, to pair with your standard of care. So now, instead of having an 8% chance to live, 
crap, now you got an 86% chance to live, right? Or you have a 92% chance to live. Or you have, at the end of the day, you have a whole lot better chance to survive based on dealing with a major medical illness because the drugs that are being manufactured now are designed to do that. There is no treatment, there is no cure, there is no nothing. Can you help manage it? Yes. And as we advance on, and I know I'm, I'm, I feel like my FDA attorney is stroking out right now behind his desk <laughs> watching this on live streaming. So hi, Rick, how are you? Listen, no, um, it's on yet. They, they have to edit it. Don't worry, we'll so edit it out. They, uh, they, <laughs> thankfully, there are people that have got into this space who are of total science mind, right? Or ridiculously fast spinning beanies of molecular compounds. They understand it. They know it. I, not knowing what, how this panel was actually going to go, um, last Sunday I reread again at 5.30 in the morning the entire Epidolex executive published study that they did, and which, just to make sure that, um, obviously you know he's, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're here for the panel, but at the end of the day, can you read section 12.1 for me please? out loud. This yeah. is of Epidolex for the <laughs> mechanism of action as to how it works. The precise mechanisms by which Epidiolex exerts its anticonvulsant effects in humans are unknown. Cannabidiol does not appear to exert its anticonvulsant effects through interaction with cannabinoid receptors. This is their study. They have no idea how the hell this shit works. But yet it works, right? So for us in the science space... Well, you have a question? Oh, for us in the science space, um, yeah, I think it's, is it on? Yes. Okay. Um, for us in the science space, we know that they, it, it's history. They already got FDA approval for this, right? Now the next, the future drugs, hi Rick, the future drugs that are coming out are now, on, we understand how it works. We know how it works. We know the pharmacogenetics. We know what it actually does. So, oh, well, it shrunk a tumor. Oh, well, how the hell did it do it? The companies that are in this space now actually know. So it changes, as this, again, all relates back to the youth, it changes the way in which we're going to be able to administer standard of care. Is the FDA going to have to be involved? Of course. Are insurance companies going to have to be involved? Of course. They're, welcome to, you know, 2020, right, 2019. So I'm ecstatic at the fact that we can put that framework down to where we know what's actually happening and why and then we can deliberately see the result within months, right? Not waiting years and crossing our fingers, but actually seeing a result within months. So that's my Thank two cents. So your take on it, as you, here you are, here you are, you're 23 years old, you've gone through all of this. When did you know who came to you? Was it your mother that came to you? Did you go on it through your friends in school? I mean, your doctor didn't do it. If, uh, for those of y'all who attended the, the 10 a.m. talk on uh, the endocrine system and hormone system, Dr. Melanie Bone is my mom. Uh, she's a cannabis physician. And uh, 10 years ago, or more, yeah, 10 years ago, uh, she was getting ready to send me away for smoking pot. Uh, I was a delinquent kid, you know, a spirited underachiever, if you will. Um, and I, uh, it, it's, it's an identity that suits me well because um, I had been sent away. I'd been in a uh, 
treatment facility where I was being monitored every day to take my medicine. I was totally sober and cut off from access to other drugs. And uh, six months into my Lamictal treatment before I had the Steven Johnson's reaction. Uh, that is where your epidermis and dermis separate uh, on the inside and outside of your body. You get a fever of 104 degrees and it's typically fatal. It's also called toxic necrosis. Uh, and it's a side effect for you know epilepsy medicine. And I got this after being on my medicine for six months, making it like a one in two 250 million side effect and I'd been sent away for smoking pot. I stopped smoking pot. I was doing the treatment. I was doing the right meds. My parents were happy and then I'm in the hospital and no understanding of what's happening to me and it was at that point that I sort of really decided I wanted to take my health care into my own hands and, and how after, old were you? I'm 23 now and at that time I was 16. 16? 16. 16. And you said I, I really wanted to take my health care into my own hands. I, I really value uh, you know, the intersection of mental and physical health. And as someone who was sent away for being oppositionally defiant, I think is the word they like to use still, um, I recognize that it's important for us who have those experiences to share about them because you would never believe that that's the kid sitting at this panel today talking to folks about cannabis. Um, and I got here because I was confident in my beliefs. I calmly explained to folks this works for me. My mom is a cannabis physician because she recognized I wasn't going to change my treatment. I knew what worked for me. It was up to people to come around and support me in my treatment or sort of get lost. And as I was becoming an adult, it became evident to right. my parents. And was, was your mother at 13 a cannabis physician then? No, she was she was a gynecologist, and um, a, she's a cancer survivor herself. Did the whole thing without uh, cannabis, and reflects about how a lot of a lot of her life could have been very different. Raising four kids, you know, with pot might have been a little bit easier for her. Uh, but now she has the perspective, and now we get to share it. So, what was the first thing you did? You're now 13. How old were you? When, 16. 16. You 16. You're now 16. So I, I'm in a, a closed treatment facility until I was 18 uh, because that was the only way my parents could get me to graduate high school. Uh, worked though, uh, fun fact. Uh, but the upside of that is that I moved out to Oregon as far away from my family in Florida as I could. Uh, Oregon was getting ready to legalize pot at the time. Um, I started a company making cannabis kombucha and tea as well. Uh, because for me, I developed IBS as a long-term symptom from my Steven Johnson's, and for me, managing my gut microbiome as well as uh, minimizing inflammation through cannabis and Camellia sinensis has always been sort of the backbone of my care. And um, to this day, I tell people drink tea, smoke pot. It's pretty nice, and uh, that's what I'm saying now. <laughs> I paid him for that. Okay, he we talked. That in. Just kidding. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you. So here's a mother of four. All here's day. Here's a mother four. of four that has gone through all of it, has has really been strong as could be in it. When did you know? At what point that you had to take? the opportunity of knowing, okay, this is what the doctor said, this is what I think, and this is what I believe I should do. When did that belief system kick in? Well, I'm you know, very, so that we, yeah. we have mothers yeah. that are listening, that are out there going, I have a child, she's 17, she's epileptic, you know, she's got this going on. She, when, what is that awakening, I mean, seed in your head that pops, that you know, uh, you know what, I gotta take this to my own hands. Well, I think it's possible I'm mildly oppositionally defiant. Can you put the mic closer? I think, I think it's possible <laughs> because I, with my daughter, um, and she's 20 now, uh, f 
from very early on, a lot of doctors wanted to tell me what to do on a variety of levels. And when we got the diagnosis, which it was, it was ironic, because I, I found out that this was going to happen, that she was going to have this massive missing part of her brain, when I was 21 weeks pregnant, they gave me five days to decide whether or not to terminate the baby. So I talked to a few people, um, but this child was already moving around in my belly and all of those good things, and so I made a very quick decision that regardless of the outcomes, I was not going to do that. Um, so we went through with it knowing that the day she was born, and gosh, there were 30 people in that room. I mean, so many people witnessed that delivery. Embarrassing, but um, <laughs> we, we didn't know if, you know, they told me that there was a high likelihood she would be blind, deaf, and paralyzed. And it was quite possible that the day she was born, she would also be the day she would pass. Ready, was ready for that. Uh, baby came out healthy, chubby, bread screaming, all of those good things. Uh, the next thing that happened was our neurologist was out of town. So a resident came in, because she had an MRI the day she was born. A resident came in and said, oh, she's gonna be fine. It's just a subarachnoid cyst and she's gonna be fine. Two weeks pass, I go to the neurologist's office, he's back in town, and we get there with our brand new baby. We've been through what I would consider a pretty major trauma already. We get to his office and he says, oh gosh, I don't have your films from the hospital, which that's how you know how old I am, because it was on film. film. Yes. <laughs> so, no films come back in two weeks. Two weeks later, we go back to the neurologist, he puts the films up. He never looks at her, he never touches her. He puts the films up, he looks at it, and he says, yep, schizencephaly. And I, being the oppositionally defined, or whatever that term was, say, is it open-lipped or closed-lipped? And he goes, well, it's open-lipped. I knew that was the worst of the two. And the nurse goes, schizencephaly, how do I spell that? And he goes, ah, S-C, I said H-I-Z-E-N-C-P-H-A-L-Y, and we will never be back here. So I had a few lessons very early on that made me absolutely a defiant advocate for my daughter. I had a doctor, before she even started having seizures, try to put her on, I think it starts with an L. It was a long time ago. A very old drug. Mm -hmm. Absolutely not. You know, I've had physical, occupational, and speech therapists. I had a speech therapist tell me she would never talk. She talks, yes, she sounds like she's holding her tongue, but I understand her. Her family understands her. Lots of her teachers understand her. I had all kinds of crazy therapies suggested. We tried Botox for spasticity. It was frightening to watch. It didn't last. We stopped doing that. Invasive, non-invasive, I have always been in that driver's seat. I will listen. I will do my homework. I've walked out on neurologists. I've given other neurologists the most amazing kudos. Um, but for me, I had that ver very early on. So I'm always open to those things. What typically upsets me is over the years I've worked with many, many families. I've done um, side jobs, not even jobs, but where I would be paired with a family to mentor them through finding out they had a child with Down syndrome or autism or epilepsy or what have you. And what I know is that not all parents have that ability that I have or learned that lesson or feel confident enough to own their child's health care. In, in such a way that their mind and their heart and their soul tells them to do. Um, so for me, I've known it forever, so I've never hesitated to explore things. Uh, what I want to do moving forward is help other people find that mm. through education and bringing people together and connecting them. Yes, thank you. So with that said, 
my question is, so it's now 2019. Going into 2000, it's 2018. Oh, I'm rushing. Oh my God, okay, well, oh, I had a moment, I had a moment. It's 2018, <laughs> God, a lot of moments. <laughs> hey, I'm 70, you know, you have a lot of moments at this age. A lot of things come up, you go through a million changes, right? I mean, really, Jane Fonda, last quarter. So, um, it's now 2018. Where, what do you see will happen in the next two years? Curious to see, do you have a magic ball in front of you? And you have some ideas and feelings that you see that could happen, will happen. What's going to happen with the industry? What's going to happen with CBD? What's going to happen with the youth of today in CBD? I mean, where do you see it going? I mean, there's been so many different investments in the future of bitcoins and everything else that we all believed in. And now here we are at a hemp CBD festival. Do you see it being alive and healthy? And for the youth of today, will our kids be going to this at 17, 18 years old? I, I absolutely think yes. I think there are gonna be two very distinctive sides to this industry and we're seeing the trends and everyone will have probably very similar concepts here. There will be the adult use recreational side and there will be the medical side. And the medical side will be, generally speaking, uh, no offense to this at all because I like you. Uh, you know, there'll be a lot of white men in suits rushing in, and they are. And that is okay to a point because those bigger companies, the marketing dollars that go with it will pave the way for the awareness of what cannabinoids are, can be. Uh, we're using CBD right now, but the future of the medicine will be far more specific, I think, than, and Carlton will you know, we talked on a panel about this a few months ago. Um, we'll be getting more specific to need states, to symptomology. I would hope that we still fall very much in line, again, ancient wisdom and modern science, because if we don't understand that the way the plants were grown and developed and, and that cannabis that comes from Humboldt or on a lava-rich place, a field in Hawaii, has a certain quality and energy to it, you know, I think there are gonna be, there's gonna be a lot of play on both sides. But let's say we're talking youth and medical. Um, the future is going to be more of this uh, cannabis medicine. I think we're going to have tremendous, tremendous movement, especially as of soon as maybe this week when we get that hemp bill finally, finally voted on and through the bipartisan supported hemp bill that will make hemp again the strongest agricultural commodity as our entire country was founded on. That's going to pave the way for more research. That's going to pave the way for more opportunity, hopefully for the minorities whose communities have been decimated by the prohibition. There, there's a lot of beautiful, beautiful stuff. I don't think I'm just being Pollyanna. We're here for a reason. The size of these expos grows for a reason. The amount of parents and people that show up at town halls are growing for a reason. Who was in Las Vegas a couple weeks 20, ago? 20,000 people there, right? 20,000 20, people. What is that telling you is that people are asking, demanding, we are becoming the uber shopper mom. It used to be the shopper mom demographic if you're an industry, if you're a retail, right? We're the uber shopper moms now because we are socially connected, we are savvy, we are into sustainability, we actually give a damn. And we are not gonna let our aging baby boomer parents and our children suffer and struggle in the ways, the myriad ways they have by being over medicated and underserved. That's the future of cannabis medicine. Miriam, you and I just met 
but uh, I love you and that's a trick question. <laughs> so um, uh, there's two very, very simple points. But it's okay to have both sides. Of it's course. It's okay to have both understandings. It can't all be mirrored and all be Milky Way. I mean, you know we're dealing with an industry. It's 200 years old. Correct. I mean, the Constitution Correct. of the United States was written on hemp. George Washington <laughs> grew hemp. Right. Right. Exactly. So uh, where I see this going in the next two years um, is, uh, first off, uh, education, right? We're all here for an educational foundation as to why you're sitting in these seats is to learn. Uh, what happened in September of this year was effectively shame on humanity for it taking this long. So the first, every doctor that's a licensed practitioner has to get CME credits per year based on their continuing education credits to keep their license, right? Until September of 2018, never in the history of the United States has a doctor, a physician, been able to go and get a CME credit for CBD. It didn't happen until September of this year. Can you please pat me for a second? Yes, I'm going to take the pat on the back because our company sponsored it. We are the ones that said, I took designated staff, set them aside, gave them the curriculum to get approved by the American College of Physicians, and our ass is the one that went and gave CME credits for doctors, right? So that... That starts there for education at the doctor level to where the practitioners are actually informed and know what's going on because they're being asked every day. Every single day, patients are being asked about it. Doctors are being asked about it from their patients. And let's face it, there's no shortage of egos in the medical space, right? So they don't want to sound uneducated or uninformed and they simply dismiss it, right? Oh, I'll talk to the nurse about it. I don't know. We've taken... Well, uh, I just got caught on that one. I can't say that. But the second one is um, a personal story of mine. So what cemented my basis to do this and make it a true passion where I don't feel like I've worked in the last five years, I've just done nothing but wake up and get to do what I love, is in 2017, I had two PEDS patients, two pediatrics, both glioblastoma brain cancers in kids. One was three, one was five, right? One was in San Diego, one was in Jacksonville. You can't give chemo to a five-year-old. You will kill them, right? So there's all of these ridiculous guesses as to now what happens as to what comprises the standard of care for that child. These kids are not, the prognosis is not good. They were early on in what we did. And I took, I have three kids myself, which definitely qualifies me to be on this panel, right? Like I'm by no means am I the, the white guy in the suit, right? <laughs> as far as um, being ignorant to what's going on or what actually needs to happen. And I have three kids, 19, 18, and 12. My youngest who's 12 was at soccer practice. And the call that we had, the intake consult call, I had at eight o'clock at night on a, on a Wednesday. And my son's soccer practice ends at eight o'clock. So he got in the car and sat in the front seat of my car for the next 20 minutes and listened to a call whereby I had the one primary doctor and the oncologist on the phone, the second primary and the oncologist on the phone, and four parents on the phone, right, with our medical director. My 12-year-old, we didn't even get out of the parking lot, and my 12-year-old is in full-on tears, right, like streaming down his face, knowing what's happening. So he's hearing it firsthand. The best thing in the world that happened was that, and this is truly my personal story only, my personal basis of no reflection of anything else except me sitting in the seat. Why I'm doing what I do 
is because that happened in March. Spring soccer ended, we go through the fall, fall soccer now starts. I had seven months later a follow-up call, the same thing, eight o'clock at night. I purposely did this so that my son could sit in the front seat. He sat in the front seat after soccer seven months later and physically heard both kids say thank you because they were now cancer free on the phone, right? Their doctors were on the phone and we're talking huge major medical institutions that were there. It was not, you know, Billy Bob's pain clinic out in a strip mall somewhere. These are huge medical institutions. And for my 12 year old to look at me knowing that those kids are there and now deemed cancer free was like, I was Superman at that very moment, right? In his eyes, I was Superman because they're still alive. So for me with youth, that's, yeah. It's, CBD is not expensive. Um, it is not going to be expensive to treat as far as to make new drugs and treatments. It's expensive to make the drugs, obviously, to get them approved. But now that they get approved, to make it affordable as a standard of care is, uh, is a very easy thing to do. So. Um, I think over the next two years, we're going to see a triangulation of three things. So it will be corporate America and the government. It will be uh, patients and caregivers, and it will be physicians. And there's going to be a battle between the three of those people to figure out what's best for everyone, and everyone's going to want what's best for themselves. So I think uh, really inciting people to unite and speak out and get together and demand is going to be very important. I think trying to bust through the segmentation of doctors is going to be incredibly important. Doctors are typically segmented when it comes to launching a new drug into three categories. So you have early adopters, and they're like, bring it on, give me a new therapy I can give to my patients. You have um, acceptors, so they're gonna try it with one patient, they're gonna give it a good long time to see how it works before they try it with anybody else, and they're going to be slow to move in. And then you're gonna have the rejectors. And those are the ones that in any typical product sales cycle take the longest amount of time and are most ignored. So no matter what happens, you're still going to have people that won't get that access they want or need or that yes from their doctor because it takes them so long to get on the bus. So I think we're going to watch that happen and it'll be about patients and caregivers demanding their attention so that they have no choice. So to some degree, we need to teach them how to ask for it and ask for it strongly. And then the corporate government thing is it's gonna be what it is. I mean, we'll all watch that go down on a variety of blogs and news channels and all of that good stuff. But again, if doctors and patients and caregivers can fight that good fight together, then hopefully we'll find some balance. So can we open it up for a Q&A? Do you mind? Can I, can I say one thing on that subject? Okay. Um, as someone who does a little bit of manufacturing and is working with uh, companies in the medical and rec space, I get asked a lot about synthetic or bioidentical cannabinoids. Uh, the phrase we, I mean, Shira and I had a great conversation about this today, and uh, there's some vendors here who are offering CBD that's not from hemp or cannabis plants. Um, reading, you know, the epidemiologic study that underscores how we don't know these mechanics, um, though we do have pretty good understanding of what is significant, to me is a really big area of concern as we start to head into more targeted interventions. As we build on what we think works to try to get a better understanding of that, we risk setting aside 
untapped and unexplored areas. Uh, I don't hear regular discourse about canaflavins, for instance, which are vastly underexplored areas of the plant that have very clear medicinal effects that have been studied in the 80s, but at that time have not really been explored. Similarly, the application of CBC to these kinds of epilepsy treatments, I think, might get swept under the rug as we try to just understand this THC-CBD dichotomy. Uh, and so, in context of what I said earlier, listening to folks, listening to what works, and trying to get a better understanding of why things work for patients can help us better educate physicians and develop better products and ultimately educate people in the most responsible way. Yes. Uh, thank, you. thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, as you know, I mean, as a mother and as a grandmother, you know, you always want the best for your kids. You, that's all you want to do is give them anything that can help and you just you want to hear it from other amazing minds and what they've gone through and to share it and to have it and to feel is so powerful and you'll see it I mean it, it will we've got to answer the questions we got to we got to voice it you got to put it out there you can't just oh I think it's okay for my little girl she she's got a gum issue you know, I think that it's really got to be more than that. It's got to be facts, and it's got to be written, and it's got to be told. And uh, I think it's really important. So with that, does anybody have a, a question for this amazing panel? Yes. I have a question for Dr. Spaulding. Dr. Spaulding. Mr. Spaulding. Mr. Spaulding. No doctor. Can you hear her? I'll repeat the question. Right. You're, you have done clinical trials. Where? Have you completed any clinical trials specifically for children? And, and is that data available or going to be available with an expiration date when we can get to it? Uh, it, it. And because you can talk about the future, <laughs> how many of future studies do you see being Did you hear the question? No, no, it was a great question. Did you hear the question? Did anyone not hear it? Oh, everyone heard it. Okay. Uh, the short answer is yes. Uh, there are what's called orphan status, things that we can do in the clinical world, which is what would allow us to help him, right, sitting here right here, where we clearly classifying as an orphan status case because it's less than one in X, right, which means it's very, very rare, but you have to address those rare cases because that's systemic to, to everything else. So is the data available today? No. Will it be? Yes, absolutely. Is there specifically budgetary aspects for pediatrics that's been incorporated? Absolutely. No questions asked. And are there, are there patients currently, there are patients that have been put in for the power analysis of the study, they obviously would not allow me to say how many, right? So, but the short answer is yes to all of the above, and without a doubt, the data would become available. Thank you. Wow. Anyone else have a, a question? I see someone right here in the front. We'll start with the front and then come and then in the back. Go for it. The question is?
and she's now at uh, CHOP in Philly doing six months of chemotherapy. Uh, and, and so Especially glial. Right. 2018, what is, what is the prognosis for something like that for this child's life in, in the future? Big question. Yeah. That's, a hard, that's a hard question and a hard answer. Yeah. Because you're asking someone to look into a crystal ball and to tell the future of something without seeing any charts. My family are all doctors. My brother-in-law runs the trauma department of Bellevue, New York Hospital, and Mamadides. So my, half of my family are all major players in New York in the world of medical field. And I know if Dr. Ron Simon was here, my brother-in-law, he said, I'd have to see the chart. I'd have to look at all the paperwork. You know, it's a, it's a major question and a concern, but I'm going to save him a little bit because I know that he can't throw out an answer like that. And it's tough. You want an answer. When somebody is really searching and their heart is so, like, in there with it, it's a real tough place. I mean, he will, if he can, he can answer it, but I'm just giving, I, I know. A little bit. Huh? I can answer it a little he bit. He can answer it more. a little bit. Okay, yeah, there it is. Yeah, so um, clinical trials that are run have uh, what's a very specific protocol, right, that are written for those, and they're hundreds of pages long. They're not, we're not talking it's like a weekend project. It takes two years to put a protocol together for an FDA trial, right? So in that protocol, the FDA is so black and white, and there's zero, there has to be, from a science standpoint, there has to be zero room for any contamination of any sort of any kind in the in the integrity of the data of the study, right? Because you're, you're basing tens of millions of people's lives on it. So with that being the case, they oftentimes, the science wonks, will go design clinical trials whereby you have a first-time occurrence, meaning the patient had cancer, or meaning has it now, newly diagnosed. If you had cancer in the past, I can't take you as a clinical trial. You're, you're what's part of the exclusion criteria, which is a kick in the nuts and it's sad, but once that, the, the silver lining is that when they baseline those drugs on newly recurrent, most all cancers are recurrent, right, of malignancies. When they base those trials on first time occurrence, then that's what funds the study, that's what spawns the result. Then you now achieve the objective, of course, any doctor on the planet is gonna turn around and if they have something now at their disposal to use for a recurrent cancer, you, without a question, they're gonna use it. Right, so it's hard to get people with a recurrence into that kind of an environment, but they ultimately need to just, I mean, it, if you could ultimately reset the clock, you would, but they just need, we need to do our job in moving things as fast as humanly possible so that that patient now benefits. All right, thank you, thank you, thank you. This is where the clergy person comes in. A parent is always going to seek the black and white answers to the hardest questions of this exactly. experience, this joyful chaos called life. But it's the journey itself, and it's looking for validation and emotional support and spiritual support 
to work in conjunction with the medical support. There are no direct and clear answers because you can be in a clinical trial and you could not be. You can be already diagnosed and taking certain medication and another child with exactly the same diagnosis and medication may have the same better responses, different, one lives, one doesn't. There are no answers to that in terms of what a life journey really is. So when you're here and you're asking that question of people like us and we're trying to support, just remember that you've already sort of answered a little bit, which is that we hear you, we're all questioning, we all have various sets of information, references, and resources that are now available to you just because you used your voice to ask the questions that we all want to ask. And we all know someone who needs those answers. So at the very least, we're sharing the journey and the experience. And that may be the gray, but at least it might be the silver lining in that gray. Thank you. Perfect. Well we have one last question. Two. Oh, we have two. One here and one back there. Because we got to give these guys a break. Unfortunately, so I'll, I'll just give you a little analogy. So um, a few years ago, I, I spent three or four years working on a drug for nar narcolepsy. Narcolepsy only affects about 150,000 people in the United States. However, most of those people wait 10 to 15 years to be diagnosed. So the mission for that brand was to get people diagnosed. I don't know that right now there is any organization to that material. It is a fire hose of good, bad, and ugly when it comes to those resources. I was just talking to Miriam earlier today about how that, as I grow this little agency and can afford to do it and still eat, um, what I would love to do is, is gather smart folks and, and develop some kind of repository where all of the best information is there. It's been vetted by a group of people who have the ability to do that. We'd love to see that happen. It doesn't exist. It doesn't. And there's some good and bad things out there. And, you know, Not yet. I remember from when my daughter was a baby. The worst thing you can do is Google. So whenever I talk to somebody who says, oh, my child was diagnosed with this or diagnosed with that, I'm like, wait a minute before you Google. I'm going to give you some guidelines on what to look for, where to go, and who to listen to. Uh, it doesn't exist yet, but it is definitely something that I think is on the top of a lot of people's minds. It's just probably going to be a minute. All right. You know the next, uh, here comes the next project. I can hear it coming. I see it. I see the cable television show happening. I see Netflix on it. Netflix is on it, actually. They're in development, but I'll tell you about that later. But the, um, <laughs> no, but I think because that is so, because this is still a little bit of the Wild West in, in what we all do and what we know, um, 
there are different organizations which have different pieces of information that are useful and I make the suggestion often follow those organizations do your own due diligence and research meet someone that you feel like oh they, they are an expert I trust them I can read that I can follow their website you know we we know a lot but you still do have to aggregate that content um, but there is hemp industries association hia.org knows a lot about so the cream will keep rising to the, to the top here. There will be the companies and the entities and the organizations and the institutional systems that will care a lot. And so every bit of information they put out, you at least know you can trust that. So though I would say the trade organizations, the Drug Policy Alliance, people that are on the cutting, even if you wouldn't think of that normally, follow them. Because they're following the statistics that are actually really good, accurate statistics. And again, it helps you to, to get that foundation of education that each of us is responsible for having. At the end of the day, we can offer you whatever we can offer you, but then you still have to be you and, and meet us halfway in that. But I have a whole list of a whole bunch of groups. I list okay. them on my website. Happy Perfect. to help. And your last question to the lady in the back of the room, and then we're going to let these folks go. Thank you. Uh, my name is Carlton Bone. Oh, absolutely. Second year what? <coughs> uh-huh. Unofficially, I am not a doctor. I did not do the disclaimer. I cannot diagnose, treat, prevent, or cure, offer you information as medical assistance. However, <laughs> that being said, I have seven disclaimers written through the book. It's that was number six. <laughs> it was number six. Um, yeah, we can talk a little bit offline, but the, absolutely. Why uh, don't you talk to the, her? You know, if you study, all. look at uh, Tikkun Olam, look at the cutting edge research coming out of Israel, look at the first initial study that was done on autism using cannabis oil for the first time uh, for autistic children who have non been nonverbal. 24 to 48 hours after their introduction of cannabis oil, they are verbal. They are saying I love you to their mother. I'm gonna cry, but I work with a lot of these children uh, who are post-vaccination. My son at 11 had an MMR reaction that his pediatrician says was eczema. I'm like, are you kidding me? But okay, uh, so we can't say what we can't say. But we know what we know, we know what we've lived. And uh, you and I can have a really fascinating conversation. I have an aromatherapy spray that I designed for those children to support everything else they're doing. The answer is yes and yes, and please do more of what you're doing by being here. All right, thank you everyone. Thank you for coming. Thank the panel, aren't they amazing? Aren't I lucky? And my amazing production team that is filming this. God dropped them in my lap. Thank you, MJ. Thank you.